You're listening to The Sunday Debate on Intelligence Squared. This week, we're examining whether after a historic defeat in the 2019 general election and over a decade out of power, Britain's Labour Party is now unelectable. It was our second debate since the COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted in the UK and it was brilliant to be back in person again and having the online audience watching on the live stream. If you want to take part in some of these events, attend in person or vote and ask your questions while watching live online, you can find details for upcoming events on intelligencesquared.com. But now let's go to the host of this week's debate, policy editor of BBC Newsnight, Lewis Goodall. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, delightful to be here to see so many people in person at tonight's event, which I'm sure is going to be an interesting and lively one, particularly as we're in the uh, People's Republic of Islington. Well, of course, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, motion before us is, is the Labour Party unelectable? And the great thing about that motion, of course, is that we could have been asking that question and answering it pretty much at any time over the last 11 years. And actually, funnily enough, pretty much since the Labour Party was founded, because, of course, the Labour Party's history since it was founded in 1900 is one of almost unremitting, almost unrelenting failure. For the 121 years or so since it's been, since it was founded, it has been in government only for just over 30 of those years. And for pretty much as long as that time has gone on, people have been asking that very question. Even in the 1950s, after Labour had had its most successful government, people were saying, has the Labour Party's coalition evaporated? Can it deal with the age of affluence? Can the working class base, which has sustained it in 1945, and afterwards endure? How can it deal with the questions of modernity? Someone like Tony Crossland was asking that question even the way back, as I say, in the 1950s and 60s. And yet, somehow, it manages to stay alive. The question is, I suppose, now, as the Labour Party looks at its 12th year in opposition since leaving office in 2010, is this just another period like all of those periods? Is it a period where the Labour Party has just reverted to its default setting, which is being in opposition, And somehow, somewhere, somewhere down the line, it will be resurrected. Or is there something peculiar and particular about this uh, period for the Labour Party when the pillars which held it aloft for so long, Scotland, the north of England, have gone or largely gone, and it simply can't adjust itself to the new demographic realities of our politics. But of course it matters because the Labour Party, when you, whether you love it or you loathe it, is the only non-conservative force in the country, in the United Kingdom I should say, of course, not Scotland or Wales, but in the United Kingdom overall, which has a chance of forming a progressive government. We have some stellar speakers to help us answer all of those questions. Our first speaker in favour of the motion tonight is uh, Matthew Goodwin. Uh, he's the author of the best-selling books, including Revolt on the Right, National Populism, and the forthcoming title, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics and he's a professor of politics at Kent University. Matt. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think we're all in this room tonight because we care about the Labour Party, uh, because we care about democracy. Uh, I care about the Labour Party. The first election that I was eligible to vote in, 2001, I voted for Tony Blair and New Labour. But like much of the country, over the next 20 years, I drifted away from the Labour Party Or maybe the Labour Party drifted away from me. My grandmother uh, grew up in the South uh, Welsh Valleys. She used to tell me that the Labour Party ran through her blood. My grandfather worked seven days a week in the steel factories in Salford. 
uh, and was also a diehard Labour voter. I've gone on a very long journey to get to where I am tonight, which is explaining to you why the main opposition party, uh, the Labour Party, is unelectable. And I think it's unelectable for three main reasons. I think, firstly, electoral politics. The Labour Party today has the lowest number of seats that it's ever had since 1935. It's not lost one red wall, it's lost two. It's lost Scotland and it's lost much of Northern England. It's also on the cusp of losing a much larger piece of territory, the Red Wall 2.0, where lots of Labour MPs today are sitting on very thin, very vulnerable uh, majorities. Uh, the Labour Party has increasingly become a party for the graduate class, for young students, uh, for ethnic minorities, who all congregate heavily but narrowly in the big cities and the university towns. The Labour Party has not won the popular vote in England since 2001. Outside of the cities and university towns, the Labour Party doesn't really know what to do with England. It doesn't really know how to talk to England. And that is much of the reason why the Labour Party today is no longer the party of the working class. For the first time in our recorded history at the last election, class had no, it, no impact at all on how people voted at the election. If you were working class, typically you voted for the Conservative Party. You certainly didn't vote for the party that was founded initially to represent your interests. The new divides in British politics are age and education, not social class. And that's left the Labour Party with an incredibly precarious coalition. It's left the party dependent upon university students who are about 30 points less likely than pensioners to vote. And by the way, pensioners are the fastest growing group in the country. Uh, and it's left the party increasingly dependent upon university graduates who are so culturally liberal on questions around migration and identity and so forth that they are gradually drifting away from everyone else in the country. The Labour Party is stacking up votes in areas where it doesn't need votes and it's losing votes in areas where it desperately needs votes. If you look at the 20 seats in the country with the largest majorities, about 16 of those currently are held by the Labour Party. It's losing Hartlepool and it's stacking up votes in London. This is not a viable long-term electoral project. Secondly, ideal, ideological reasons. The Labour Party was founded for an era when the dominant uh, framework in politics was left versus right. It was about economic competition. That era is over. We are leaving that era. Every political scientist in the world now shares a consensus that the left-right divide has now been joined by a new culture divide between cosmopolitans, those university graduates, students, social liberals, and cultural conservatives. And the problem for the Labour Party is that it hasn't realised that the groups that it's become dependent upon are actually very small. Only about a quarter of this country uh, has a university degree. Only, I think, about 30 constituencies have university graduates uh, wielding so much influence that they can determine the outcome of an election. And as these new cultural questions around identity and belonging have risen up the agenda, the Labour Party has found itself increasingly preaching to a very small section of the electorate. 
Most people in this country are proud of this country. Most people in this country support controlled, manageable levels of migration. Most people in this country are reasonably pragmatic when it comes to issues like international aid, but they don't want to be taken for a ride. Most people in this country care passionately about family, and they look at the flag and they overall see more reasons to be proud of Britain than to be ashamed of Britain. Unfortunately, within the Labour Party, the third reason why it's become unelectable is because it's essentially been hijacked not just by the graduate class, 90% of Labour MPs now have university degrees, they're more likely than Conservative MPs to have university degrees, but it's been hijacked by a new radical progressive ideology, loosely termed wokeism, left modernism, identity politics, which has seen not just the Labour Party but left-wing parties around the world become utterly obsessed with race, gender and sexuality. Gordon Brown saying British jobs for British workers would be a non-starter today. Lisa Nandy even suggesting that we should put British interests first attracted derision from Labour's progressive activists who have become utterly consumed by the idea that Britain is a racist society riddled with institutional racism who only see the world through privilege and power structures. That is not how most voters see the world. Racism, by the way, is currently at its lowest levels in our entire recorded history. So you can tell the country over and over again that it is riddled with racism and the British people should apologise for their white privilege, yada, 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 yada. You're not going to win an election saying that. And unfortunately, as Anand's research has actually shown, Labour MPs are now more culturally adrift from the rest of the country than even Labour Party activists. They've become so culturally detached on issues around migration, on issues around national identity, that they have moved further to the left than the party's most ideologically committed activists, which is something we've never seen before in British history. The old law was that party activists were the radical ones and MPs were the moderate ones. But now, unfortunately, that's been turned on its head. And the reason why I talk a great deal about the rise of wokeism on the left of politics is a very simple one. It's ushering in a new status hierarchy in our society where if you're white, working class, and you don't have a university degree, you're at the bottom of the new status hierarchy. The very groups that the Labour Party needs to win back are the very groups that the Labour Party is subtly saying over and over again that there's something wrong with them simply for being part of a particular group. And unfortunately, that's not just taking place here in Britain, but across much of the wider world. It's the reason why Joe Biden has a razor-thin majority and will get smashed at the midterms next year, because the Democrats are hemorrhaging support among white non-graduates, working-class voters, and now also Asian-American voters, African-American voters, Latino-Hispanic-American voters, who are looking at the progressive woke left and saying, Actually, I'm not entirely sure I want to live in that particular vision of American society. And that culture war is coming here. It's already here in many respects. And it's another reason why ultimately I believe the Labour Party, for the rest of this decade at least, will remain utterly unelectable. Thank you.
Thank you very much indeed, Matt. And next time for our next speaker now, who's going to speak against uh, the motion, who is Professor Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics. I'm sure many of you will be familiar, particularly if you're on Twitter, and Foreign Affairs at uh, King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Initiative. Anand. Thanks, Lewis. He's also very old and has just realised he can't read his notes under this light, but anyway, we'll see what happens. I mean... If you think about it, all parties seem unelectable until they seem electable and then they get elected. And the Labour Party has a proud tradition of seeming unelectable. Back in the 1960s, when a couple of academics wrote the book Must Labour Lose, in 1992, when John Curtis and his collaborators were writing about Labour's last chance, we've been here before with the Labour Party. And this notion of Labour being unelectable is an interesting one, but I'm going to oppose it. I should say to start with, in a sense, what Matt just argued was more than that. He argued not just that Labour are unelectable, but the sort of Labour have lost their point. And an interesting thing to ponder when it comes to that, I think, is the fact that if the point of Labour was to introduce high-tax, high-spend economy with investment in public services, the issue isn't that Labour have lost their point, it's that the Tories have done it for them. If Margaret Thatcher's greatest achievement was Tony Brown, Tony Blair, I wonder if Gordon Brown's greatest achievement was Rishi Sunak. One of the problems that the Labour Party has at the moment is we don't know who the Tories are. And until the Tories sort themselves out, it's going to be very, very hard for us to know. Now, in opposing the motion, I don't want you to give the impression that I would put my mortgage on Labour winning the next election. I wouldn't even put Matt's mortgage on Labour winning the next election. Labour are not just in a bad position, they're probably in a worse position than you think. Think about it. There are 27 seats where in 2019 the Brexit party vote was bigger than the Labour majority. There are 58 Labour seats where a small shift will see them fall to the Conservatives. The new general election book, the Nuffield general election book, which is out this week and which I recommend to you, argues that if the Brexit party hadn't stood in 2019, Boris Johnson would now be sitting atop a majority of 130 and not 80. Add to that the fact that Keir Starmer's leadership has been less than impressive to start with, lacklustre to say the least, I don't think I'm going to stand here and say, don't worry, Labour will definitely win the next election. But that is a very different thing, I think, from saying Labour are unelectable. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. With hindsight, we can look back to the high point of new Labour and trace from that moment the seeds of Labour decline. In 2001, Labour were re-elected. That, for many in New Labour, was the purpose of the project. But at the same time, in that 2001 election, whilst Tony Blair won more seats than Margaret Thatcher had in 1983, he lost nearly 3 million voters. And many, if not most, of those 3 million voters were the people who turned to the Tories in 2019. The seeds of Labour defeat were sown a long, long time ago. But the problem with hindsight is it makes things look too easy. And if you try and do hindsight forwards, if you try and extrapolate from the present, it's too easy to draw the wrong conclusions. Let's not forget that so many electoral events that we've witnessed over the last few years have shocked us. The Tories didn't expect a majority in 2015. Cameron didn't expect to lose in 2015. May was certain she was going to win in 2017. And the electorate keeps surprising us. And what I'm going to argue is there are three reasons in particular why we should be more cautious than ever when it comes to making heroic claims like one of the two big parties in this country is no longer electable. The first is what, we, what political scientists call volatility. The, the electorate in this country is far more promiscuous than it has ever been before. 
You think back to spring two years ago, if you looked at the opinion polls and didn't think it through, you would think the next election would see Joe Swinson doing PMQs facing questions from Nigel Farage. Joe Swinson was naive enough to believe those polls, if I remember rightly. The point isn't that either of those were really going to win. The point is that the electorate are now capable of changing their minds to an extent that has never been the case in the past before. Between 2010 and 2017, 49% of voters changed the party they voted for. Given that level of volatility, it strikes me as heroic at best to start making bold assertions about where voters are going to be in two, three, let alone 10 or 20 years' time. The other argument that a lot of people make about the Labour Party is they're not just being challenged because of the various reasons that Matt came out with that I'm going to turn to in a minute, but they're also being challenged on the progressive side, not least by the Greens. Across continental Europe, we see the Greens sucking support away from traditional social democratic parties. But they don't have our electoral system. Bear in mind that historically, over the last few elections, between 25 and 50% of people who've told pollsters they support the Greens have swung to the Labour Party when push comes to shove into a, in a general election because voters aren't stupid. Voters know how our system works, and many voters don't want to cast a symbolic vote. They want to cast a vote for a party that they think can wield power. Now, let me turn to the core of Matt's argument, which is the primacy of social values. And yes, he does have a point here. There is an issue with Labour moving far to the left when it comes to social values. And there is even more so an issue with, over the last few years, this social divide between social conservatism and social liberalism replacing the traditional left-right divide on which our party system had been based. The class no longer matters as much as either age or education. But let me say two things about that. The first is a long-term thing. This isn't going to be the situation forever. It's worth pointing out that, as Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska argue in a fantastic book called Brexit Land, that I recommend to any of you who haven't got anything better to do with their time, the number of graduates in the voting population goes up by almost a percentage point year on year, while the share of those with only GCSEs or less declines by over a point year on year. So our population is changing. We are becoming more educated. There are, at a, min there are at a minimum, problems ahead in the medium term for the Conservative Party. But let's not bother ourselves with the, immediate, with the medium term. Let's think about more immediately. Yes, throughout the Brexit process, that Brexit divide dominated our politics and led to electoral outcomes the like of which we'd never seen before. Conservatives winning Stoke, Labour winning Canterbury. But I don't think it takes much imagination to imagine that situation changing. Think about where we are now in an economy that is teetering on the brink of seeing serious inflation for the first time in years and the prospect of a rise of inter in interest rates this week, let alone what happens if interest rates rise higher into the future. An economy where growth is low, an economy where the Resolution Foundation says that the average family is facing £3,000 more in taxation, an economy where the Institute for Fiscal Studies is talking about continued stagnation in living standards. I don't think it takes a leap of imagination to think it is at least conceivable that by the spring, summer or autumn of next year, the British people's attention has been dragged back from issues of whether or not you should kneel before football matches or pull down statues to worry about their jobs, their mortgages, their kids, their future. And if that happens, 
Labour have a very, very compelling case to make. And on, on economic issues, the Conservatives are fundamentally divided. If you think about that division between Red Wall Conservative MPs and traditional Shire MPs, faced with difficult economic choices, it is very hard to see how the Prime Minister can keep that coalition together. Again, to oppose the motion, I don't have to say this definitely will happen. All I have to convince you is it is conceivable that it might. And if it's conceivable that it might, then the Labour Party isn't unelectable, but actually is in potentially rather a good position. And the final thing I would say is this. What does electable mean? The bar actually for Keir Starmer is lower than it was for Gordon Brown or for Jeremy Corbyn. Why? Because no one wants to be in a coalition with the Conservatives. Even the DUP, after their experience last time, are going to think twice, probably three or four times, to be honest, before signing any sort of agreement with a Conservative Prime Minister. That means that all Keir Starmer needs to do to win an election, and it's still a high bar, but it's not as high as it would be if he had to win outright, is prevent the Conservatives from gaining a majority. Again, given the uncertainty our country faces when it comes to the future of the economy, I don't think that that is beyond the bounds of reason in an election in two years' time. Again, my financial advice to you is not to put your mortgage on this, but I do think that we need to be profoundly sceptical about bold claims about the future of our politics at this most uncertain of times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anand. Our next speaker speaking uh, for the motion is Ella Whelan, journalist, commentator and author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. And she's a columnist at Spiked. Ella. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me here. Slagging off the Labour Party these days, it's not as fun as it used to be. Um, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel, mainly because even those who are meant to be defending them, even some of their own peas are usually lining up behind you with a shotgun waiting for their turn. Everyone seems to be having a pop at the Labour Party these days. And in a way, I think tonight's question is the way it's phrased is important. Is it electable? Not should it be electable? Does it deserve to be elected? And for a long time now, the Labour Party has played a kind of a game in trying to really wrangle votes through messaging or comms or maybe even, as Alan said, through relying on promiscuous voters or failed Tories. It's all been about this sense of dealing with how out of touch they are, which you know almost every Labour MP now admits on Politics Live or some media show, you know, we're like self-flagellating, we're, we are out of touch, we are, we know we are. And the way that they've decided to counter that is with a real push on imaging on superficial level. So the party has semi-unanimously decided now apparently that you know people didn't really like this kind of socialist grandpa with his squashes and his jam uh, in Corbyn so what we need is a serious person and so in comes the stiff that is Keir Starmer with his you know suits and his quiff and his very um, determined and lawyery sensible look uh, you know, they say to themselves, all oh, you know, all these red wallers, they were sick of hearing uh, Emily Thornbury um, and, and, you know, her like in Islington. They hate all the avocado eaters. So what should we do? Oh, well, let's get in Angela Rayner with her ac accent, you know, smoking a fag outside conference. That's really what's going to get the votes in for us, all on that very superficial level. Um, but I really, the, the point I'm interested in is why should they be elected? Should they? Whether or not they're worthy of it. And to my mind, whether it's stronger together, the slogan, or for the many, not the few, 
the Labour Party does not deserve to be elected because it isn't just out of touch. It hasn't lost its feelers and its um, feet on the ground. It has been living in bad faith and has done for a long time. And I think this all comes down to one moment. Uh, and the, the proof of the pudding was in five years ago when the UK voted to leave the European Union. Brexit heralded, I think, an end for the era of Labour that was a long time coming and also far more important and momentous for that party than Tony Blair's replacement of Clause 4's commitment to common ownership over co common endeavour. It was bigger than that. It, had a, it marked a bigger change in Labour Party's history and future. Because Brexit and Labour's response to it, I think, reveals the party's fundamental flaw or its fundamental truth that it hates and fears democracy, that it despises, in fact, the prospect of mass politics and the masses talking about their stake in controlling the future of politics. And it wasn't really um, even Cor Corbyn's cowardice around his Euroscepticism that was the problem or the terror of the phantom far right that stopped the Labour coming in behind Brexit or the nonsense of a kind of apocalyptic Tory Brexit and Armageddon. I think what really terrified the 2016 Labour Party was the idea of greater democracy, of mass politics, of ordinary oiks who fly their England flags and drive their white vans and you know, the people that Shami Chakrabarti call Essex man, that they would have a greater say in the laws and the politics and the future of their own country. And I think it's really important to say that this wasn't a blip. It wasn't suddenly that the Labour Party woke up and decided that it was going to have nervous and sweaty nightmares about democracy. From the kind of burst of interventionist law under Blair to the wholehearted embrace of today's modern anti-democratic green politics of eco-austerity, the Labour Party has for years, years and years, seen the public, and in particular the working class, as a problem to be managed, not a force to define the future. And indeed, they haven't learned from the mistakes of Brexit. Um, even the, the kind of very obvious undemocratic sentiment um, continues throughout the pandemic. I mean, how many times does a Conservative government have to clamp down unreasonably on people's civil liberties, block the freedom to protest, raise alarm about the way in which people talk about a significant event online? For an op what, what will it take for an opposition to stand in and defend the very basic of our freedoms? And yet Keir Starmer and his fellow MPs seem to only be able to push for greater clampdowns on democracy, embrace greater controls in relation to whether it's the um, Coronavirus Act or restrictive policies, to celebrate when um, laws are brought in, call for them to be brought in further and faster. A failure to challenge the Tories' war on freedom, on, to protest on civil liberties, or indeed to stand up, most importantly, for working class people's living standards throughout the pandemic, I think has really shown you that the, that kind of deep-seated um, desire to clamp down on mass politics, to control, to um, push back on uh, people, ordinary people's involvement in politics is really still there. I mean... The fact that Keir Starmer, what was it, on the 25th of October just recently, has now returned to the call for a work-from-home order 
shows how <laughs> little he understands the fragility of our freedoms at, right at this point, the way in which the Conservatives are ramrading over them, or indeed the reality of the fact that asking a population to work from home would, you know, that, that's not a sensible position for a vast number of people, that most working-class people cannot work from home or indeed survive on the pay cut that is also known as furlough. I mean, in every fibre of its being, in every drop of its sweat, I think the Labour Party oozes this disdain for the masses. You know, we can't promote civil liberties or people will run riot with it. We can't support democratic change or everyone, you know, and, you know, we can't talk about even the Lords or the monarchy or indeed Brexit or we'll turn, everyone will turn into a kind of far-right lunatic. We can't allow, and indeed in the words of Starmer, it isn't right to say, he has a right to say that women have cervixes. You know, we can't have a public discussion about gender or we might all turn into trans-hating bigots. I assure you no one, <laughs> maybe some people in this room, but no one I know anyway cares about the internal workings of the Labour Party voting rules and how they elect their representatives. But even within its own party, the recent scandal over changing um, the rules shows you that they have no sense of what democracy really means. I think the Labour Party, to finish isn't fit to lick the boots of the working man or woman, uh, let alone command their ballot. I think what's really become obvious to most people over the last few years is that they hate us, they hate working class people and have done for a very long time and now they're getting a taste of their own medicine. So is the Labour Party electable? Maybe through some tinkering here or there. Maybe if every kind of uh, stereotyped uh, avocado eater got together and stopped voting for the Green Party or the Lib Dems and got their act together, maybe they'd scrape something with a coalition. But should they? Do they deserve it? I don't think they do. Thanks. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Thanks, Ella. Well, we're still waiting for uh, Jess Phillips. Honestly, who would trust an MP these days? But I'm told she's going to arrive momentarily. And I can excitingly tell you that um, until then, that the pre-vote results were 42% of you in favour of the motion that the Labour Party is unelectable, 25% against, with 33% undecided. So eagle-eyed viewers will have noticed that we have been joined by uh, Jess Phillips, MP. Oh, wow. Jess Phillips didn't get that. I don't know what you would think you were doing. I mean, you know, honestly. Are we voting? Oh, right, that thing. Just a tiny thing. Um, 
So yes, as you'll know, Jess Phillips is MP for Birmingham Yardley in my neck of the woods, author of the books, including everything you really need to know about politics, everyone, and truth to power. So Jess, and she'll be speaking, I assume you'll be speaking against the motion that the Labour Party is unelectable. Yes. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, if, you, yeah, if you go to the podium. Okay. Apologies for my lightness. I was voting uh, in the budget votes. So I'm wholly unprepared, uh, as you might imagine, which is probably why the Labour Party doesn't win elections. And to be fair to the Labour Party, it is considerably uh, better prepared in, in many ways uh, when we talk about uh, the specifics of electioneering. However, that the fact that the Labour Party is still the biggest political party uh, in the country just simply doesn't add up to it historically or currently winning uh, elections. The Labour Party too often finds a comfort blanket in the righteousness of loss. And it's no irony that I'm in uh, Islington talking about this. I wouldn't be away from my family for the endless hours that I have to spend in London. I wouldn't take the slings and considerable arrows if I thought that there was no chance that the Labour Party could win an election again. It simply wouldn't be worth it. The reality of our position currently is difficult. I can't pretend otherwise. However, I remember vividly how difficult things looked for the Conservative Party for the entire early 2000s. They looked as if they would never, ever rise up again. And here now it feels completely as if they have an all-supreme power and nothing will dent them. But it is not my experience that that's because they're any good. Or certainly not my experience because they're any, that they're any good. They're absolutely shit. Um, but especially if you live where I live, it's, you know, I, I, you know, it's a joke and I'll say it, but it's pretty crappy to live under this government where I live. But the truth is, is that we cannot just wait and expect them to be bad. We have got to, as the Labour Party, make people's expectations greater. One of the problems that the Labour Party faces at the moment is that people don't any longer expect things to get better. People only really expect things to stay the same at, the, at best. And people will say to me on the doorstep, oh, you know, I mean, he handled the pandemic quite well, didn't he? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you consider the worst death toll in Europe quite well, well, no one could have done better. Well, Germany. So... The reality is, is that people in this country have started to expect services to just simply keep degrading. Most people in this audience who are over a certain age expected to be able to buy a house. At some point, I bought my first house when I was very young and it was, was it just 20. And that wasn't particularly unusual. Do you think that there is a 20-year-old in the country today who has the expectation that they should 
be able to buy a house. In my constituency, seven of the schools no longer operate five days a week, one of which my children attended. And there are 27 schools in Birmingham where that is the case. And of two of the schools in my constituency, not one parent complained to me that the school was shutting at 11 o'clock on a Friday. Not one person got in touch with me and said, it's a bit rubbish, isn't it? We have started just to learn to accept things will get worse, that the expectation that you, your kids would be able to buy a house, that your kids would be able to go to school, that you would be able to see a GP, all of these expectations have waned over the years and the Labour Party has got to remind people that their expectations for improvement should be greater. The Labour Party has got to present the idea of things not just having slogans, but actually on the ground getting better and people's experiences and people's lives improving. And at the moment, I just don't think people have any expectations of politics. They don't have any expectations of any of us to be any good at anything. And, you know, in some part, they're (laughs) relatively accurate. But the reality is that unless we start presenting that things can and will get better, nobody's ever going to remember that things used to progress, that things used to improve. And the Labour Party has got to make people's expectations of what they expect and want match what it can promise to offer and then actually deliver. And until it does that with confidence and cheery nature, then the sort of better the devil you know, you're all the same, not as bad as it, you know, whatever, we'll just take Boris Johnson, he's quite funny. It's not even funny. I mean, I don't understand. Um, that, that will remain. But the Labour Party has had terrible times before. The Conservative Party has had terrible times. The thing that I think that we have got more used to in the last uh, few decades is that we just expect to have terrible times and terrible service. And until we change that argument, then there will be a fundamental problem. But if the Labour Party didn't exist, somebody would invent it. Because there has to be a fundamental socialist democratic party that represents the people in our country and the things and struggles that they care about. And so I I came in late to what you were saying, so I apologise if I've misinterpreted you. The idea of changing that and creating another party, I think, historically has totally failed and not been successful uh, at all. Um, And I cannot see a way that, without just reinventing the Labour Party in the minds of people in our country, but first reinventing their desire to expect better, to expect what I had, let alone what my parents had from various Labour governments, were always the ones who delivered that for us. But we forgot to shout about it. And we let somebody else shout about other stuff and rewrite the story. But I don't think people will take that much more of this crap, if I'm perfectly honest. So I have every hope that the Labour Party uh, can become an electoral success again. And I wouldn't be bothering to be here if I didn't think so.
Thank you, Jess. So if you'd like to ask a question, if you could keep your questions reasonably brief, then we can get through as many as possible. And if we start perhaps with the uh, gentleman here. I'm a student at King's College London and I'm from India. So I just came to United Kingdom like 20 days ago. So good politics. Well, welcome. Good politics, good politics. My question is to the first panelist. I'm sorry if I don't remember names. I don't remember names back home as well. So okay. uh, my question is, on if I was not wrong, July 23rd, um, when a 19-year-old Bokai Osaka missed a penalty and the entire country, after 50 years, made it to a major European final, a 19-year-old was continued to be abused. I just remembered the 50,000 people who, was, who were chanting racist slurs at Bukayo Saka. So when you say stuff like racism is on its last leg, and you have an event like that two months ago, how would you justify it? How would you justify the fact that a 19-year-old was abused? And how, how, how would that feel for anyone who wants to come and study in this great nation? Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm going to take the question through, but maybe just as it's a very specific point, Matt, if you sure. want to just yeah. respond. Thank you for the question. What I said specifically was not racism is on its last leg. What I said was levels of racism in this country have never been as low in our recorded history as they are today. And the reason I said that is because we've entered a strange new place in this country where there are many activists, many movements, some political parties that are actively invested in portraying Britain and Western societies more generally in a particular way, in a particular light. And that's not to deny that racism exists. It does. Um, we can see it. We can see it in, I work with surveys and evidence, we can see it in the things that we study. But we, I believe, have fundamentally lost sight of many of the positive trends that have been sweeping through British society. We've become consumed. I, I have to start from the point of view of evidence, right? And unfortunately, in our public debate, we've lapsed into this new realm where evidence doesn't matter and people's lived experience or their subjective feelings uh, are paramount. And that's a very dangerous place for a society to be. And I'd even agree with individuals like John McWhorter in the US who have argued that for some activists, particularly some activists on the left of politics, anti-racism actually now means a very different thing from what anti-racism used to mean. It's become a sort of new religion for people who have lost touch, I think, with the empirical reality that surrounds us. Um, and I think that's really what I was referring to with my comment. It'd be nice to get any questions from women. Oh, we've got a, a lady here. Uh, but other women in the audience who might like to... Ah, here we are. There you go. No, it doesn't rain, but it pours. Hi, I'm Lucy. Um, I had a question to the panel around the role of the media in terms of how Labour can get elected. Like, it just seems to be that when a Labour politician does something wrong, like eat a bacon sandwich badly, he seems to get... Like, there seems to be a lot more criticism when Boris kind of does something... It sort of just seems to go away quite quickly when it's the Conservative. Ella, what do, you make, what do you say to that point? It's the media's fault. Well, I mean, in some ways, the, the funny thing is that the Conservatives have had so many media scandals in the last 18 months. Uh, Matt Hancock feeling up his mistress on company time. Dominic Cummings driving around testing his eyesight. 
Boris Johnson redoing his flat and, you know, various other things that have commanded a huge amount of media attention and scandal. And, you know, okay, there was the argument that Jeremy Corbyn in his time in office got a huge amount of hate in the press. I think things are probably fairly even. I mean, when the media smells blood, it goes for it. Um, and that's an important part of a free press. And I, don't, I think it could be seen as a little bit... I don't want to use the word pathetic, but I think when parties try to blame the media for their shortcomings, it really is comes across as you know the the person who blame the builder who blames his tools. It's not my fault. But I mean, you know, I have to just pick up on some of the other questions and indeed something that Jess said, which is this idea of low expectations or the, you know, the bar being set so incredibly low. Um, what the speaker over here just mentioned, the fact that Keir Starmer has been in office for to, you know, it's a huge amount of time for an opposition leader to make some kind of a frigging impact during an emergency. You know, say something. From It's not like you've been locked up in your room with tape over your mouth. Say something. You know, address people. Make some kind of an impact. I mean, now, it, the thing about the coronavirus pandemic, it's been horrendous, you know, period of, of horror and death and destruction of people's lives. But we are now facing, you know, everyone talks about the phrase, the new normal. There is now, not to sound crass and try and make an opportunity out of a crisis, but there is a bit of a crossroads now, and the Conservatives have taken the opportunity to change tack. And there is a space now where people are thinking, what is not just the new normal, but what is our future going to be? What, you know, what kind of shake-ups do we need to make people's lives better? We've had lots of people just on a kind of individual level over the last 18 months off work or on furlough or, or you know, kept away from their families readdressing what life means you know what are the important things in life what am I lacking is why am I still in this crappy job that I do nine to five for or longer for peanuts and there is an appetite I think for change within the population and you've got a conservative government who are doing maybe a little bit of tinkering here and there for the Labour Party that is you know fresh out of ideas I mean you know to I have to kind of pick up on the fact that in her speech Jess said the problem really is with you know the Labour Party isn't really the Labour Party, it's people and their low expectations. And it seemed to me what you were really saying was that we need to get people to expect better, but not when it comes to parties, because there's no one better than us, and we're only good when the Tories fail. I mean, what kind of expectations, what kind of ambition, what kind of bar is that to set for people? The problem is not with people's expectations. The problem is that politicians want to maintain the status quo. And indeed, I involve the Conservative Party in this, are allergic to change. And, and, you know, people's low expectations don't come from them just being sort of either thick or lazy. It comes from politicians consistently saying that the kind of Thatcherite Tina message, that there is no alternative. Jess, if you briefly answer that, but just, just on that point in particular... That we've gone through a period over the last 18 months where the whole country has apparently become collectivist. You know, we've all been living our lives in a collectivist fashion. How could it be that the Labour Party couldn't capitalise on what, on any measure, seems to be an enormous ideological shift to the left? I'm not sure how much it was, it, it was considered to be like left-wing by people or that it was considered to be in any way political. I think that, that you're absolutely right that whether we capitalised on it or whether being seen to capitalise on something like that is callous. And that is undoubtedly uh, a concern. But in the Second World War, the Labour Party capitalised on there being a war, but it wasn't callous. 
It just yeah, helped no, I'm not, even, I'm not even suggesting that it would be to select, suggest that, um, that we should capitalise on it would be callous. I'm just saying that I can understand that there is always a nervousness about being seen to be capitalising on something where hundreds of people are dying every day. I'm not suggesting that it, whether that's right or wrong. The, the idea that, um, in response to your point, that I'm saying that people are lazy and stupid is absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying, in fact, the exact opposite. And it's the same question answer I would give to the, the question about the media, is that I'm always absolutely stunned that people who believe that everybody who reads the Sun or reads the Red Top newspapers or the Mail is completely and utterly driven in their voting decisions by what they read and that they can't analyse it or see it for uh, opinion, um, whereas everybody who reads The Guardian or The Sunday Times, they, you know, d- isn't in any way led by that as well or can't see that whether that's an opinion. I find it deeply patronising, actually, to people, the idea that they don't make their own decisions based on their uh, experience of politics, politicians and their own lives. And so I don't think that the media plays a huge amount of role in how people vote, actually. It's not something that I've ever particularly noticed or think that politics shouldn't have to override. But I think that you're absolutely right in what you say is that that people, politicians, don't necessarily want change. They don't... The status quo is comfortable and safe in lots of cases and wanting things to radically change is is rare in all political parties. I would say that 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 is absolutely true. Can we just... Let's say we're running out of time, so I just want to get as many questions as possible. Okay, the gentleman here. I think Jess is a wonderful representative for the Labour Party, but as an ex-Brummy, I'm slightly bemused by her comments on the schools because Labour's been in charge in Birmingham since 2012. Not in charge of the schools, my friend. The vast majority of them are uh, academy-run and funded directly by the Department for Education. Is there any other? Is that it? Okay, right, right, fine, that's fine. A a factual question. But you're right. It's nice to see everyone. A lady... Julie, um, we don't only vote for the party, we vote for people. And frankly, the last few leaders, they just don't speak to us. They don't have much charisma. And you do have good people who speak to us and who have charisma. There's Jesse Phillip, there's Tara Creasy, there's Andy Burnham. So I'd really like the panel's view on how the party gets the leader it gets, because... The Tory had a few months of Theresa May, which were painful and enjoyable to watch. But in the end, they got rid of it. And they got someone who, whether they liked him or not, thought would make the party win. So I, I just don't get what's happening. Thank you very much. I think I've got time for one more question here. I'm, I'm very sorry. We're going to this gentleman here. Sorry about that. Uh, I guess one item that wasn't mentioned so far is... The Labour Party has always been part of what we used to call the Labour Movement, a combination of politicians and trade unionists. I know Matt hasn't talked about it, but I think he's made reference to it in many books. The trade union movement is all but dead. Its membership has completely collapsed. I came through the trade union movement, and I remember the issue was always Labourism. You know, labor, Labourism meant that Labour would take control of the state and run it in the interest of working-class people or use it for the interest of working class people. And in 19, was it 74 when we joined the EU? 
The only person who said that that would be a disaster for Britain and for British working people was Tony Benn. He said that it would lead to fundamentally undemocratic Britain. And when we come to, just to finish, to Brexit, the British working people expected Labour to take control of the state, to run it in their interest and to do things for them. But the Labour Party was saying, we're prepared to give all our institutions of state over to control by the EU. That's why people rejected the Labour Party, because you couldn't use the state anymore to help them. You, you didn't have any possible ability of helping them. Thank you very much, sir. Um, we are coming to the very end. So I would just ask now, I've just been told that uh, it's time for you to decide. You've heard all of the arguments. Please submit your final vote. That'll take about 30 seconds. And in that time, if the gentleman and this lady could very quickly say your point. Um, well, thank you very much. Yeah, so I wanted to bring up the uh, Scotland question. I'd just like to ask the, the entire panel, and thank you very much for your time, how can Labour fundamentally change in order to start reclaiming that previous stronghold? And what do you think? Do you think there is any possibility of revivification for Labour so in the, Scotland? The problem is I, I'm from Glasgow, which is traditionally extremely working class background. My father was from a slum in Glasgow. And he himself has completely fallen away from the Labour Party because they don't feel represented. That Those previous social democratic values, the SNP seem to have a monopoly on it now. So there doesn't seem to be a, a real alternative. I mean, it, it is exactly the same situation. There are two causes for it, aren't there? Firstly, there's a new division in politics. It became independence versus uh, the union, and Labour got skewered on that one. But secondly, and almost more corrosively, was that perception of Labour hubris, that Labour MPs got elected in Scotland because they should be elected in Scotland. And actually, the worrying thing for Labour is, like in the part of the country where I come from, in West Yorkshire, you see real elements of the same thing, with Brexit being the new sort of division, but with that perception that there is a sort of Labour establishment that assumes that they'll be elected in Yorkshire. And but, you, you Alan, see, how is that different um, to Conservatives expecting to be elected in Surrey? Uh, it isn't. But it isn't. the Conservatives but, seem to be, more, to be more in Surrey, at least for the moment. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. I suppose in the last couple of elections, one of the reasons for that was those, those Tories in Surrey disliked Jeremy Corbyn more than they worried about the state of their own party. And I think that was a very powerful factor indeed. And, you know, it's one of the things we haven't talked about today, the degree to which Corbyn, as the prospect of Corbyn as prime minister, acted as a glue for the Tories and even Remainer Tories in these so-called blue seats, were willing to take a punt on Boris Johnson because the alternative was Jeremy Corbyn. But even without Corbyn, without Corbyn there... There hasn't been a sort of sudden well, resurrection in the polls. No, no, but in the polls, in the polls, the polls. No, but we've had an odd two years of politics, haven't we? To be honest, no, it's true. Um, just finally, final word to this lady here. I found it quite amusing, uh, especially being a child of immigrants. This general mood towards the disdain towards the pushback on government and general Western philosophies. So especially when we're mentioning things like the negative view that we have on Western civilization or even things just like trans-exclusionary feminism, why is it that we should see these things as a, something to pose as a threat when really it's a democratic process and act of democratic rights? But, but, but isn't this the point? And I've said as well, I mean, when we talk about, you talked about being woke and this yeah. idea of being woke, I mean, couldn't you have said that about, say, gay rights in the 1980s? And you, would have been, you could have still turned no, around to someone no, and said, oh, no, you're really woke, the Labour no. Party shouldn't go on about that. What's that's the difference? A, well, what's, a, just very quickly, what's, yeah. what's the difference I'll, I'll between that difference. and... I'll tell you the difference. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very misleading comparison. Over the last 50 years, the campaign for civil rights has effectively been divided into two sections. The first section, civil rights in North America, Europe, here in the UK 
was really focused on building equality between different racial, sexual, gender groups and doing so through unifying narratives that brought people together. Martin Luther King was a classic example, talked about religion, talked about patriotism, talked about citizenship. Uh, the new anti-racism, the so-called third wave of anti-racism, identity politics, has almost zero interest in unifying narratives. It is a race to the bottom <laughs> in dividing societies into what many uh, thinkers and ideologues see as, as competing power structures. Society is nothing other than a set of competing power structures, people with power and victimized minorities. And there is no unifying narrative uh, anymore. But I think the, uh, the point is, is that people said that in the, in the 1980s and so on, the Labour Party or the Democrats in America shouldn't go on about these esoteric things because it will lose them votes. And that's still the argument today. But anyway, no, the difference, uh, no, the difference, it, there's a big, big difference. The current progressive left, which uh, studies actually by Kings and more in common have shown between represents about 13% of Britain, is not only culturally uh, adrift from everybody else, is extreme in how, it's, in how it views issues of race, racism, um, historic injustices, is obsessed with talking about Britain's empire and, and why we should feel ashamed of Britain, but is also deeply intolerant of other views. And that is very different, actually, from the past. Um, and, and just briefly, and the reason, the reason I feel very strongly about this is because a good friend of mine, colleague who you might have heard of, of Kathleen Stock, has just been dragged through the court, public court of approval because she happened to hold a particular view, which is entirely legitimate and acceptable, but under this new woke orthodoxy, has been um, chased off a university campus and forced to leave her job. So the difference is actually huge. And unless we cotton on to, to that difference and why progressive ideology today has gone off on a complete tangent, then actually I, I think the Labour Party will not be able to get back into mainstream politics because people can see straight through it. Uh, just a final word to you briefly, yeah, if you just, would, please. I mean, just briefly, the, the point that Matt makes there about the difference being an issue of free speech is key. I mean, uh, as a child of Irish immigrants, I don't think we do enough of slagging off British um, empire and colonial pursuits as much as they still exist. But, that, but the discussion of those, it's not, let's not pretend that we're just kind of throwing ideas about these days and that, you know, I hate the word woke, I think it's a bit stupid, but to use that term, that wokery is just, you know, uh, having a bit of a pop at people. It's not. It's, as Matt says, it's a closing down of discussion. I mean, what, it's quite incredible that the Labour Party, through its leader and some of its leading members now, seems to have taken a concrete position on a discussion around gender ideology that, as far as I can tell, if you stop anyone in the street, is at least open, right? It's at least open to discussion. It is something that is normal to talk about, the difference between sex and gender, men and women, how we identify ourselves. There's nothing bigoted or wrong about talking about that. And yet you have Keir Starmer saying it is not right to say something as fundamental and you know, normal as women's biology that women have cervixes. And indeed, I mean, Jeff Phillips, you retweeted this article from a Guardian writer that was a fantastic article looking at the ways in which 
women had been, you know, to use the word erased, but indeed, as in the case of Kathleen Stock, threatened and sidelined in this discussion. And I don't know why you did, maybe it's because you had pressure from the wrong side, but you unretweeted that. And there's a huge amount of cowardice, I think, in a party that likes to wax lyrical about how much it cares about us ladies, that when push comes to shove at a discussion that is really talking about single-sex spaces and women's position in society, and even the word woman, it cowers away and it doesn't want to have that discussion. Whatever side you are on that debate, the fact that we are not allowed to have that debate, in the words of the Labour leader, is shocking. Yes. Start off. The reason I uh, deleted it was because dickheads were arguing with each other, not even arguing with me, and that is all I could see. And I was just like, "Oh God, I cannot be asked with watching people being horrible to each other." Because I don't like. You might think it's a cop out, but also the idea that this one particular issue is the only progressive issue uh, is is absolutely, and it's maddening to suggest that the Labour Party and or anyone who is trying to uh, have progressive movements isn't doing it in a unified way. I spend my entire life talking about women's only spaces, actually, when I talk about domestic abuse services and the idea that people like me talking about women's rights and trying to advance the experience of people who've been raped, people who've been victim of male violence, that, we do, that we're doing this in a way that shuts down people and it isn't just for progress. I, find, I just think that that is madness. I don't think that Catherine... Is it Catherine? Stop. Kathleen. Kathleen. I apologise that I don't know her name. She's been all over the press. If you don't know anything about Kathleen Stock, do your homework. I, I, I mean, it's a central position. Can I just say, no, it's an essential position that not one of my constituents has ever raised with me. Come the on, idea yeah. that you're walking down the street and people are having this debate... It's is, all over the news. It's all that anyone has been talking about for the but last But it has week. literally never once been raised with me oh, by a constituent on. in Birmingham Yardley. It's a cop-out. Although, although the interesting thing is when the government recently brought legislation to defend freedom of speech in universities, Labour voted against it. No, that is just a total and utter no, that's exactly misrepresentation what, that's, that's exactly of what, what happened. happened. Do you think that Gavin Williamson's freedom of speech thing is genuinely... I think it's an... ...is genuinely to try and... You know, this is a man who has done absolutely nothing about the safety of people on campuses. I'm not interested in Gavin Williamson. I'm interested in it's having a mechanism anymore, that means people like Kathleen Stott, Neil Thin, Noah Carl, Jordan Peterson, etc., 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 are not chased off of Britain's university campuses. I and I would have thought the be. Labour Party would historically have been interested in ensuring that I just the don't voices want Holocaust of deniers on them. groups are represented. Well, I think on that note... Uh, <laughs> All roads lead back to gender equality. Now, final vote. We've got the final vote in before that particular discussion. And in the end, there was actually a bit of it. You remember when we started that the, uh, there's 42% in favour of the motion. The Labour Party was unelectable, 25% against, undecided, 33%. The final results in the end were 52% in favour of the motion, 41% against, 7% remain, despite everything that you've heard, unbelievably, incredibly undecided. So there is a majority for the motion that the Labour Party is unelectable. So there we are. Well, thank you very much for coming, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Thank you to the panellists as well, who've been lively, as you might have expected. Please give them a round of applause. Uh, 
And please have a very safe and pleasant journey home. Thank you very much.